Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. In April 1980, the U.S. government launched Operation Eagle Claw, their response to the hostage crisis that was happening in Iran at the time. Helmed by then-President Jimmy Carter, the Delta Force tried to rescue the 52 hostages that were detained in the U.S. Embassy and foreign ministry buildings in Tehran. The documentary Desert One explores different aspects of this failed mission through interviews with the hostages, soldiers, commanders, and even President Jimmy Carter. The film was directed by Barbara Koppel. Barbara Koppel is a two-time Academy Award-winning filmmaker, and we're fortunate to be able to say that she's joining us today along with Ambassador Jimmy Limbert and Staff Sergeant Taco Sanchez joining us today to talk about the documentary film Desert One. Barbara Koppel and to all, welcome to Film School Radio. Barbara Koppel, I want to start with you. The events that are so beautifully recounted in Desert One happened 40 years ago. In some ways, it feels like this is a story that is long overdue to be told. And I understand through the uh, work that you've done with this documentary film that you've uncovered some new information. People have stepped forward to talk about what happened and how and why it wasn't a success. But did you have the sense that time was running out for many of the people who are a part of Operation Eagle Claw and that now's the time to do this I'm so glad we did because for me, it was such an important story to be told. It was a story about heroes. It was a story about the horrors of war. It's a story about, um, you know, our tense relationship, the U.S. relationship and the Iranian relationship. It just encompassed so much and it encompassed to the humanism of, you know, uh, President Carter wanting to do something that was diplomatic to get the 52 hostages out. It was the humanism of the men who were on the mission, who were ready to give up their lives to save 52 Americans, no matter what it took. And also of the hostages hanging in there and going through so much for 444 days and not knowing whether they were forgotten or not knowing what was happening. So how could I resist not doing that film? Well, what was the sort of entry point? Where did you feel like you needed to start in order to tell the story properly? I needed to start with the men who were the hostages and the men who were on the mission, who lived it and breathed it and to hear their stories and to then find you know, historical footage that would match to the stories. But also it was quite difficult because there was a mission and the mission was a secret mission, which means there was no film shot whatsoever, nothing, total silence. So that meant getting somebody to do animation. And we had an Iranian animator who lived in, you know, New York, um, to do the animation and he just did such an incredible job. We had to make sure that 
we reenacted everything that, you know, the people who were on the mission were telling us. We looked up in history books to make sure that we had what a C-130 would look like, what the helicopters would look like, um, and to retell that story. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm going to, um, Ambassador John Limpert, I'll, I'll, I'll go to you and, and sort of give us uh, some historic context for, I described it in the introduction, um, and I, I don't know if I did a good enough job, but in terms of sort of setting the stage for what happened in 1979 on November 4th. First of all, Mike, let me uh, thank Barbara for putting out what was an amazing film. I mean, yes. it is just, it's, yes. it's uh, just a, an incredible piece of documentary, uh, documentary work. You know, she came to me and she, I had to be a little bit persuaded to participate, but Barbara, as you may know, it can be very, very persuasive. <laughs> um, and I'm most gratified that she was, that she was. Uh, in any case, Mike, uh, no, I mean, the, the U.S.-Iran relations didn't start on November 4th. I mean, it, it go back a long, go back a long way, but um, basically, President Carter, against his own better judgment, I would say, was persuaded in the end of October to allow the um, ailing Shah of Iran, in, uh, deposed Shah of Iran, into the United States for medical uh, 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 for medical treatment. Uh, he foresaw what was going to happen. He asked his advisors, all of whom who were pushing him to do this, said, "Well, what are you going to advise me to do?" when our embassy is overrun and our people are taken hostage. And this is 10 days before it happened. Uh, well, he did it anyway. And what he had foreseen uh, came to pass. And what started and the demand was return of the Shah, but that almost became, incident, became incidental because what had started out as a sort of a night, what, or at least we saw as a 1970s style student sit-in converted within a very short period of time uh, into a an international crisis and an international melodrama really among other things destroyed uh, destroyed the Carter presidency and the, the the interesting thing is that here we are sitting 41 years later 41 years later since the event those events remain uh, a festering sore between the two countries the two countries have never come to terms with what happened between them yeah. And so the kind of rhetoric that you see from both sides, where both sides threaten each other and insult each other, continues. And much of that traces its origin to the events of November 79. Yeah, and I would just pose that also the, the history between the United States and Iran goes back to 1953. I think so much of the animus that was created over those events and then leading up to it um, to 1979. It's all part of it. To me, it's part of a continuum of troubled relations. Um, I believe now Ayatollah Khomeini was already back in power at the time of the takeover by the students. Am I correct in that? Uh, that's true. That's true. He okay. returned. He returned to Iran ten days before the actual collapse of the monarchy. Yeah. Um, there was a something called a provisional government in power. Uh, following the collapse, but the the power really belonged to Ayatollah Khomeini and his, his most immediate followers. And once the uh, once the embassy was taken, uh, he 
within a few hours, endorsed the takeover, calling it a second revolution greater than the first. And once that happened, we knew we were in big trouble. Right. And of course, because there was no, nobody could get us out uh, unless Ayatollah Khomeini was going to agree. We, at some point, we'll get, we'll get into kind of the, the ramifications moving forward of these events in terms of our, of our domestic policy. But I want to go back to the filmmaking part of all of this and go back to uh, Barbara Koppel. And that is, in terms of getting access, you mentioned recreating the, since there was no footage of the actual Operation Desert One, recreating it through animation, which I agree with you was very well done. Wh- who are the people that you felt like on that operation and we've got one of them with us today but in terms of sort of you have a lot of very key people in in terms of the the uh the operation desert one putting it together and the implementation execution of it um who else did you feel like was critically important to telling the story um, in in the people that you got well i think i'd like to turn that over to taco okay <laughs> okay with, with, i mean i could tell you but taco lived with them breathed with them felt everything that was happening and he's the eyes of you know what really happened at the mission okay well taco uh yeah in terms of the people that were key key personnel the people that really made this thing work um who would you put in at the top of that list and the people that you worked with at that point in time you have to understand uh the special forces in the united states of america were uh, a shambles uh Post-Vietnam, they were uh, downsizing and trying to get rid of uh, Special Forces troops left and right. Congress really didn't uh, like us. And uh, so when the hostages were taken, you know, a call came from D.C. and it was like 11 November. We get tasked to go up to uh, Savannah, Georgia and start training. Training for what? We weren't even real sure. And what type of capability? We were, we're talking about pulling the rabbits out of your hat. So basically... You know, it ended up with the old heads and special ops that were still around at Herbert Field. Uh, quite frankly, not all of them were old heads in the senior leadership because most of those had retired, except for a Colonel Kyle, who was pulled in as the air component commander, who had a lot of Vietnam time, gunship time, and everything else. And uh, he was a great commander. Uh, at the squadron level uh, in, the, in the combat talents, you know, you had some Vietnam veterans, uh, some newbies. I was a newbie, and uh, it, it was quite wild. Now, on the Delta side, you know, uh, they had just come off of uh, their certification. Where, where does Charlie Beckwith fit into Charlie Beckwith was the commander of Delta, okay. and he was one mean dude, I'm going to tell you what. <laughs> but I'd follow him to the end of the world because Charlie Beckwith, if he wanted it done, it was going to get done, and there was no bullshitting about it. Uh, yeah. And he was a frontline man. General Bott ended up being the task force commander who was an old Vietnam guy. Uh, so you had some serious experience uh, on that, uh, except for the tasking and the mission. Nobody knew exactly what the mission was. We had no capabilities of doing what we did that night. If we were tasked to go on the 12th of uh, November, we'd have probably crashed all, all the airplanes. But at that time, we only had two frag. Okay. When it ended up, we had six uh, C-130s and, and eight helicopters, not counting a 141 fleet, a 135 fleet. We had uh, ten, uh, six gunships assigned. Okay. We sent the AC-130s in, in November out to Guam to practice doing some shooting and some flying a low level. They'd never done. It was kind of weird because the tasking was like, this could go any day. So 
and right. come back and didn't know if we were going to launch on a mission. I want to go back to, to Barbara and talk a little bit about the overview that you got from people like Ambassador Limpert, uh, as well as Walter Mondale and Jimmy Carter, um, in terms of their sort of consideration of what needed to be done. Um, you talked w- with President Court Carter and Vice President Mondale. This came about, this decision to move forward with Desert One came about because of what? Why did we get to that point where we were going to launch a military strike? I think that Khomeini was not listening at all to Carter. And Carter had protected the Shah as every other president had. And the Shah also had cancer. So he was getting him medical help. And because of that, Khomeini just treated um, Carter like he was the enemy. Carter wanted this to be diplomatic. Carter wanted this to be humane. Carter's only feeling was to save these men and not have anything happen to him. And when he realized that Khomeini was never going to negotiate with him, there were demonstrations in the street that had Carter's picture on it and death right. to the Americans and right. everything. He figured that he had to do something. So Charlie Beckworth, um, as Taco had mentioned, was brought in and Charlie Beckwith, which is really wild, came from the same place that Carter came with. That's right. came from. <laughs> same county. Same county in Georgia, right? <laughs> yeah. And he heard his accent. And Carter said, so, so where are your kinfolk from? Right. And said, you know, the same place as yours. And that was, I guess, an immediate friendship. So then Carter sort of just leaned back and just said, all right, how many helicopters do you want? Right, right. He said six and I'll give you eight or whatever it was. And that's how it was launched. But he had to do it out of desperation because he wasn't going to get anywhere with Khomeini. Right. Well, I'm going to, Ambassador uh, Limpert, I want to ask you if if Jimmy Carter had handed over the, um, the Shah to the Iranian government, do you think that that would have changed the outcome of what we eventually would happen with Desert One? Uh, I, I, again, who know, who knows, Mike? I mean, it's a it's a it's one of those what ifs because uh, first of all, it wasn't going to happen. I mean, okay. that just he just could politic he just could not do that. But uh, it was very clear also uh, to all of us that this uh, particular event was not about the Shah, and it was not about us. It was not about America, very, very quickly, it was obvious this whole event and, and, and um, I uh, and my colleagues, we were being used uh, as pawns in an Iranian political game. And this was a factional fight uh, going on, as you often see after revolutions. I mean, get, getting rid of a Shah or a czar or a, a king is pretty easy. Uh, then the real hard part and the real nasty part starts, and that's what it was. It was a fa- it was a factional fight. Who was going to be in? Who was going to be in control? And there were different factions: left, right, center, religious, non-religious, Marxist, um, all trying to elbow their way into into power. And politics in Iran, as it is in a lot of places, is a full contact sport. And we were pawns in a very rough and ready chess game. And one of the students admitted it this to me, uh, to me right out in front. He said, this is not about, don't take this personally. 
<laughs> this is not about you. We have bigger fish to fry, bigger Iranian fish to fry. Once the, uh, 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 the people closest to Khomeini, his allies, solidified their hold on power, and once, of course, the Shah had died, there was no reason to hold us anymore. Right. And the Khomeini, who had adamantly refused to deal with any American at all, uh, at all called us in, in advisors, uh, this was in August of uh, 1980, and said, settle it on whatever terms you can. We got, it. We got to finish this. Uh, it's gone on too long. Let's settle it. Because they had accomplished what they wa had wanted to accomplish. And the Shah and even the United States uh, were basically pretexts for a much different and deeper kind of political game. I want to thank our guests today. We've been talking about this wonderful documentary film called Desert One. There is so much more in this film that we're just not going to have enough time to adequately cover. So I'm going to leave it to you, the viewer, to check this out. Desert One, it's available today, August 21st, on virtual theater release. And it is... A, uh, a work that will illuminate, educate, and uh, also cause some reflection on on that history that uh, it, that occurred in 1979 and 1980, the implications of what happened, and the ramifications of those series of events on American policies in the in the Middle East as well as domestic politics. There's a lot here, so I want to say thanks again to our guests. Um, Taco Sanchez, the staff sergeant who was actually on the mission, John Limpert, who was a hostage as well as a ambassador to Iran during that period of time, and two-time Academy Award-winning director Barbara Koppel. Barbara, thank you so much for your work here with Desert One. Thank you. Bye. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio.